magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. G'day everybody, it's Warwick Schiller here and welcome to my podcast. You know, it seems with uh, the whole COVID thing going on right now that podcasts are the, the thing to do and I've, I've been going to do one for a while. I've actually been a guest on a lot of other people's podcasts and some of them were, well, most of them were horsey podcasts, but recently I've been on a couple. I've been on one with a, a trauma therapist. Uh, I've been on one with a, I forget what this other lady did, but the podcast was called Seers, Doers and Believers, I think, um, all motivational sort of stuff. And then I was recently on a podcast, I was a guest of a lady named Denny DeNovo, and she's a business coach, life coach, and a New York Times bestselling author of a book called Get in a Good Mood and Stay There. And so we took the reason I was on there is we she had me she has a horse and has been following my stuff and kind of realized that the life coaching that she does and the horse training that I talk about have very similar outlooks on life. And so I thought maybe in my first podcast here I might I might uh Talk a bit about how I came to have that outlook on life, because I most certainly I I would have been voted I would have voted myself most li- most likely to not have this outlook on life earlier on, and uh, so probably the you know I I th- I think in order to learn to train horses you do have to change your perception on some things, and no matter what way you choose to train horses you have to. You have to learn a bit of a mindset, and I think as you go along, the further along you go, that mindset gets a bit deeper and deeper and deeper. But for me, I'd been training horses for 20, 20 years or so, and 25 years maybe, and about five years ago, my wife bought a new reigning horse, and his name was Sherlock, and that horse was probably the catalyst for all the changes I've made in the last few years, which enabled me to have a be on a podcast with a New York Times bestselling author, and we're talking the same language. So I think in this this podcast, I'm going to tell you the story of Sherlock, where he came from, what issues he had, and how searching for ways to help with those issues helped me. And so this this horse, we like I said, we bought him about five years ago. Uh, my wife was looking for a new reigning horse. And a friend of ours from Australia who trains horses in Texas, um, he's one of the best reining horse trainers on the planet, so very, very, very good at what he does. And I know how he trains. Um, I can, what they call in the business, follow him, meaning some people train a horse, when you get it, you cannot, the way they train him, the way you ride or the way you train doesn't mesh in together. So you say, I can't follow him. But some trainers can follow what we call follow other trainers, and I could definitely follow this guy. So um, he had two horses for sale. One's name was Sherlock, and I forget the other one's name. And the other one was a big, handsome gelding, and he was kind of a steady eddy. He was, he was pretty simple, not a superstar, but a kind of a steady eddy. And then the other one, his name was Sherlock, was this little athletic, little catty little horse who could just do the, the reigning stuff really, really dynamically. You know, really, really, really cool. 
And both of them were in our price range. And the only reason Sherlock was in the same price range as the Steady Eddie horse is because he, you know, he's a little bit weird. And so they have some trouble getting him, what we call getting him shown. And getting a horse shown in the reining would be going through there and getting the horse to be able to do everything to the ability with to which he can do it at home or whatever. You know what I mean? Sometimes, sometimes those horses, you can have a hard time getting them to perform exactly in the show ring like they are at home. But uh, anyway, so, you know, he used to spook at judges' chairs and things like that. And so... I thought, yeah, I can probably, I can probably help with that. This friend of mine, he trains reining horses very, very, very well. But some of the other stuff, some of the behavioural issues, he kind of, you know, I'm not just like anybody at the highest level of competition. They're not necessarily well versed in solving weird behavioural issues. You know, just like imagine the the gold medalist at the Olympics um, in the dressage probably is in the best person in the world to work on your problem horse. And so uh, we looked at the videos. We didn't even go and ride Sherlock. We just looked at the videos. And like I said, I, I, know, how to, I know how to follow this trainer. So um, we decided we we're going to get him. And what's interesting is we actually, for those of you in outside the US, because the US doesn't really care about Formula One, but for those of you in Europe, New Zealand, or maybe Australia, we actually bought the horse from uh, Michael Schumacher, the Formula One driver. Actually bought the horse from Michael's wife, Karina. So Karina and her daughter are both really into the reining and they've got a big place in Texas. And uh, both of these horses were owned by Karina and we happened to choose uh, Sherlock. So we got, uh, at, you know, at this point in time, I've got probably... 10 million views on YouTube and I've got my, you know, one of my big businesses is, you know, the biggest part of my business is I have an online video subscription library that I have added videos to for the last eight years or so. And both of those were going really well. So, you know, I've got about 10 million views on YouTube. My subscription thing's going well. I'm presenting at horse expos around the world. I'm doing clinics around the world and I'm helping people and I'm helping their horses and it's all working and so I'm kind of starting to believe my own BS and I'm starting to believe, yeah, I can I can fix anything, you know. And so we bought this horse and got him home and, you know, it was he was weird enough to where I'm like, I'm going to go back to the beginning. And the thing with solving any behavioral issue at all with a horse, for the most part, if you just go back to the beginning, the behavioural issue, by the time you get back to where you were, the behavioural issue is not there. And a good example was here just a couple of years ago, I was, you know, I've, I've changed how I've done some things over the years. And when I first started my online video platform, I was training horses for the public. So I had a non-stop stream of content, these horses coming in, and I would video the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. You know, some of the early ones I videoed was I videoed a whole series on a big uh, 17-1 Andalusian dressage prospect that came to me with oh, all the problems. He didn't have a problem. He had all the problems. You know, he wouldn't lead, but then he'd run over you. He spooked. He bolted. He, you know, he just had all the issues. And so I just went back to the beginning with him and videoed the first day and the second day and the third day. And I did that with a number of problem horses and all those videos are, videos are on the subscription. But I thought I'd changed enough to where I... I needed to, I don't train horses for the public anymore. I haven't really trained horses for the public since, I think 2016 was when I, it was the first year I didn't. I've just been doing the clinics and the videos and stuff. 
And so I, um, here in the last couple of years, I decided that I probably should get a horse in with a problem to, to video it from, you know, video the solving of the problem. And I found a, a venting trainer, an eventing trainer here in Northern California, who had an imported warm blood mare that she does the eventing on, but she chronically rears. She she refuses fences, rears up, spins around, runs off, bucks, does all sorts of things. And she had contacted me about could I help her with the horse? And I said, yeah, actually, I'll take your horse for free and and, and solve the problem if I can video it. And she said, yeah, I don't mind. And I said, do you happen to have any footage of her rearing that I could use on my video subscription? And she said, well, I've got some, but uh, use it. Oh, I'm not sure about that. And I said, well, just just give it some time to think about it. It'll be, it won't be on, um, you know, it won't be in the public eye. It'll be on my pay-to-watch subscription thing. Anyway, she thought about it for a couple of days and she got back to me and she said, you know what, if I wanted to sell this horse, every horse trainer in California that I would try to sell it to has seen her get disqualified. She's been disqualified at every cross-country course in California. So, yeah, it's not a big deal. You can use the footage. And the reason I wanted the footage is because when you have a horse like that and you go back to the very beginning and you work on everything like it's never been worked on before, you don't assume they know anything and you start from the very beginning usually those problems don't arise. You don't have them at all. And that was the case with her. I had her here for six weeks and filmed everything I did with her. And at no point in time was there any rearing. And if someone who has a chronically rearing eventing horse watched that series, watched the video series that I did of her, they would say, but yeah, but, but that horse doesn't rear. I've got one that rears. That, I can't... That, that video doesn't help me because that horse doesn't rear. Well, this horse does rear, except I just went about it in such a way that that didn't come out because that's a cry for help by the time they get to that. But, you know, every episode, so every training session, when, after I videoed it and edited it and put it on the, the subscription, right at the start of every one, I have footage of that mare kicking out and rearing up and spinning around and refusing jumps and doing all that stuff just to remind people watching the videos that that's the same horse they're watching because if you watched it without knowing she was like that you'd think oh that's a really nice horse i mean she's a little bit tense in places but she's a she's she doesn't have any problems at all and so usually when you go back to the beginning you unravel problems and so as sherlock i went i went back to the very beginning at least the beginning that i knew of and and this is five years ago uh the beginning that i knew of and that that didn't help. He was very, very shut down. He's very, very internal and inside his own head. And anything you did with him, he might do it, like on the ground, doing the groundwork. He might do it, but he was mentally running away inside, if you if you get my drift there. And so and I was I was stumped because I couldn't really make a difference with this horse, like I had with other horses in the past. You know, I mean the, the spooking wasn't a big deal. Spooking the judge's chest, that was, that was really quite simple to solve that, but that wasn't really the issue. Uh, what Robin found when she started showing him was he can do all the manoeuvres like a superstar. So in the reining, you've got you've used, a reining pattern has like seven or eight manoeuvres, and those will include 
four spins to the left, four spins to the right, three circles to the left, two of them large, fast, one small, slow. Uh, three circles to the right, two of them large, fast, one of them small, slow, depending on what order the, the pattern is. Uh, a flying lead change in each direction and three stops, three sliding stops. So you run in the side, stop, roll back, run in the other side, stop, roll back, run in the other side, stop, and back up. And he could do all of that. But what would happen with him is in the show ring, when you ran fast, he'd get a little bit, he, he's, the tension that he carries inside all the time, he'd just get a little bit more tense. And so he would um, do little things to prevent him from getting a great score while doing all the hard work enough to get a great score. So in the running, you start out with a score of 70. And it used to be they would score you somewhere between 60 and 80. With start, you start out with 70. And the reason that came about was because raining kind of followed along behind cutting. And cutting developed maybe in the 40s and 50s, I think. And the first cutting competitions were at rodeos. And at the time... An average rodeo score was about 70 and high, and 80 was pretty high and 60 was pretty low, and so that's how they did that there. But the reigning is more. These days, each manoeuvre gets a separate score and they all get added up at the end, whereas in the past you used to just kind of have a guess and go, yeah, that was a 72 or that was a 74 or whatever it was. But So each manoeuvre gets a, a score, but there's also penalties you can incur. And so you can have a really good score and incur some penalties, and the penalties just come off. And... One of the things Sherlock would do is running circles. He's kind of short-strided anyway, and that's to do with the level of tension he carries. But running circles fast, he might just bounce his hind feet together once or twice. You know, so he's in lead. So if you think about a horse on a correct lead behind, it's like he's skipping and his inside hind leg's going further forward than his outside hind leg. He might just bounce those feet together. Well, in the reining, that is considered out of lead. So it's not he's on the wrong lead. He's not on the correct lead. It doesn't matter what he's doing if it's not the correct lead. And so bouncing your feet together is not the correct lead. And so every time you do that, every time you're out of lead for up to a quarter of a circle, one stride to up to a quarter of a circle is a one-point penalty. And so, you know, Robin was showing in the non-pro classes, and if you scored, say, a 73, you could you could win a non-pro class with that. And... She might go in there and run around. He might bounce his feet together three separate times in those circles and incur three penalty points and still mark a 70, meaning he was going to be a 73, but those three little split second times he bounced his feet together caused him to lose three penalty points. And so he was, you know, he could do all the hard stuff, just couldn't do the easy stuff. And like I said, I'd started back at the beginning doing the groundwork and that, that I, I didn't... I didn't know where to start because there was no starting point. I, I, you know, and it wasn't that he was, I would rather he was rearing up and running around. That's a good starting point, but he was just kind of half frozen. And, you know, even like putting the bridle on him, you go to open his mouth and you almost had to prise it open to get the bit in. You had to prise it open to get it out and he didn't lick and chew. And we'll talk about licking and chewing here in a bit. So I, um, I stepped away from trying to do anything with him. So Robin was still competing on him, but I stepped away from trying to make him any different than than what he was because, you know, I'm not a got to win at all costs, I'm going to fix this horse. Like he showed me I wasn't sure how to help him with his problems, so I stopped trying to help him. And what that did was I didn't, I didn't step away and go, well, I'm not going to fix him, I'm not going to help him. I stepped away and thought, well, I need to look at other ways of doing things where I could help him. 
And I was at a, um, a horse expo in Pomona, which is in basically Los Angeles. It's the Western States Horse Expo in Pomona. And sometimes at those horse expos, you have to do a, a lot of times you're working with a horse in an arena, but sometimes you have to do a stand up lecture. And I had to do a lecture this day. And so I went down to where the, the lecture hall thing was. And the person who was on before me was kind of going over time a little bit. So I had to sit and wait for her to finish. And she was talking about clicker training. And up to that point in time, I'd always thought clicker trainers were people that just didn't have the talent to train a horse properly. So they had to resort to bribing the horse with treats. That was the mentality I had about it at the time. So this girl who was talking, her name's Mary Kitzmiller. Some of you would be uh, familiar with Mary. She was talking about clicker training, but I know she can train a horse the right way at the time, or I consider it the right way. I don't know. She, I know she knows how to train a horse the right way. And I sat there and listened to her the last 10 or 15 minutes of her talk. And the way she was talking about structuring things, I'm like, well, that, that, oh, that makes sense. I know, I know exactly where she's going next. I don't know anything about clicker training, but the, the process is exactly the same as, as what I already do. And when she finished and handed me the mic, I said, hey, that was fascinating. Can I come find you somewhere? I want, to, I want to talk a bit about this. And she said, no, I'll come to your booth later. So I got done with that that talk I did and went back to the booth. And later on, Mary came over and sat with... Uh, so Mary and a um, friend of mine named Katie Negranti. So Katie was sitting in the booth with me. And so Mary came over and chatted to the two of us for a couple of hours and and told us all about how that worked and I'm like yeah I want to I want to try this and so we came home and I started messing with the clicker the beginnings of the clicker training with not only Sherlock but all the horses because I figured the more horses I can do it with the the better I can learn about it and I kind of really need to tell you what Sherlock was like with this at the start because it's so interesting so in clicker training usually the first thing you'll do for the most part is you'll what they call load the clicker which means you have a horse in a pen and you go over to them, up to the fence, and they come over to you, and you have a bag full of treats hanging around your waist, whatever sort of treats, whether it's some little pellets, horse pellets, or some horse cookies, whatever you've got, little wisps of hay it could be, depending on the horse. Then you have a little clicker in your hand, and you click the clicker, shove food in your mouth. Click the clicker, shove food in your mouth. So you, you click the clicker, put your hand in your pouch, pull the cookie out, stick it in your horse's mouth. And you click, treat, click, treat, click, treat, until after a while the horse knows that the treat comes right after the click. And then what you start doing is you start shaping the horse's behavior using what you've already taught them, plus you are also using what they have naturally. And, you know, lately my I've been putting quite a few YouTube videos out lately where I talk about only asking yes questions. When you're training horses, you should only ask yes questions, which means you should only ask a question that the horse can either figure out the answer to, knows the answer to, or knows the answer to and is in a mental frame of mind where they could find that answer in this situation. So basically, you you earn a lot of trust from your horse by only asking yes questions, asking them to do things that you know they can go, sure, I can do that. Instead of asking them to do something they can't do, like in the jumping world, asking a horse to jump a jump that's too high for him is called overfacing. Okay, And what happens when you overface horses is after a while they stop trying to jump because it doesn't matter what you point them at, they think I can't do it. Then they lose a lot of trust in you because usually what happens is the horse doesn't want to jump and then you're whacking them with a whip or whatever and 
it becomes a bit of a mess right there. But so overfacing is not just in the jumping world. It's in, it's in everything you do with horses. I'm really trying to not overface horses. And that does not mean I don't expect more and move the goalposts all the time or when they're ready to move the goalposts. But you don't, you don't ask them to do something that they, they flatly cannot do. It's got to be within their, the realm of them being able to do it. And you, you get a lot of, you get a lot of, um, you build up a lot of trust with your horse doing that. And so with this clicker training, we've loaded the clicker so they know the treat comes after the click. And then you just take what they call a target. And it, and I actually had a target that I'd bought from Mary. Mary has a maid and it's like a red plastic, it's like a water trough float is what it looks like. A red plastic water trough float on the end of a handle. And the handle's about mm, two and a half feet long, I suppose. So about... What's that? 750 mils long if you're a metric person. And what you do is you just stand outside the, the pen. So you, you start out in what's called protective contact because that way the horse cannot run over you. They cannot mug you for treats. And you just take your target and you put it through the bars of the thing and you're not far from their nose. And most horses, when you put that little target through the bars at about, you know, nose horse nose height, or like, you know, between waist and chest height for a person, you put it through there and just let it sit still for a minute, and those horses will tend to look at it and go, hmm, what's that? And they'll come over and they'll sniff it. And just their nose touches it, you click and then you treat. And then you do it again. And they touch it and you click and treat. And after a while they realise when they touch the target, there's going to be a noise, boom, as they touch the target, and then they get a treat. So after a while they start to realise that if I touch the target, I get a treat. And so all that a click does, it it marks the behavior that you're going to get the treat for. Does that make sense? Pretty simple. Once they'll touch that target, when then when they're just standing there, and you put the target in the same place every time, then what you might do is you might start moving the target maybe up a little bit or down a little bit, and they put their nose on it and you click. And one, you know, then you're going to move their head maybe from left to right and then from right to left with that target. And then once they're, you know, once that's good and they kind of will follow it with their nose, then what you can do is you can move along the fence a bit and put the target through the fence to where in order to, and not very far, but in order for them to touch it with their nose, they'd have to move their feet. Okay, so you might put it just out of nose reach and they take a step forward to touch it and then you click. And then you can get them to where they'll follow it around. So you can teach them how to move their feet. And what was, you know, I did it with all my horses here and it was really quite simple. And Robin was actually doing it with Sherlock and what she found was fascinating was that he, he had curiosity like other horses. He would touch the target and click and get the treat and eat the treat. He enjoyed the treat. You could see he liked that. And Robin would repeat it and repeat it. But when she went to move the target maybe a little bit further, maybe it was when it was time, maybe he moved his head and followed it, but I think it might have been when she wanted him to move his feet. So she moved the target just kind of out of reach. And he looked at the target and reached his nose out towards it and couldn't reach it. And so Robin's kind of standing in front of him and she's got her arm outstretched out to one side. So the target's not anywhere near her. It's off to one side of her. And he looks at the target and then he looks at her. And he looks at the target. Then he looks at her. And then he turns and walks off. So he knows if he takes his nose and touches that target, he's going to get a treat. But I think up to this point in time, he thought it was a random occurrence of events. 
And in that moment, he went, oh, the human being is asking me to do something for the treat. Uh, no, thanks, I'm not interested. And he just turned and walked off. And if anybody on here is a, a clicker trainer or whatever, you're probably saying, oh, you, you stepped it up too soon. You didn't do small enough slices or whatever. But that wasn't it. We'd done all the small slices. The thing was, he didn't realize he was getting asked to do things. And the instant he realized that the human was asking him to do it, he turned and walked off. And so what we realized then was, you know, even though clicker training is, is um, you know, no one's forced to do anything. It's free choice. We just, we realized how aversive to being asked to do things he was. And, you know, I think there's a certain personality type that horses have that, that lend them to acting like this. And I think they're very, very, very sensitive horses. And I think they're the sensitive type of horses that their first instinct is to go inside. Their first instinct is to not run away. Their first instinct is to shut down. And I don't know if that has to do with um, their mother, uh, whether they'll wean too early. Because I know in humans that shut down, there's a lot of what the therapists call misattunement. And attunement is, there's a um, some sort of therapist guy named Daniel Siegel who's written some books, and he talks about um, being, se- being seen, being heard, feeling felt, and getting gotten. Want to hear that again? Being seen, being heard, feeling felt, and getting gotten. And, and I'll get into this stuff in later episodes, but I I think I know humans that have misattunement, so they don't get that stuff when they're younger, uh, tend to to go inside themselves quite a bit, and it might be the same for horses. But that, horses have different personalities. But anyway, so Sherlock he's the he's the go inside one. So he turned and walked off, and so I'm like, okay, that's and we pursued with the clicker training after that, but you know he. Some horses just like, oh, can I have the food? God, I love it. He, he, you know, the food wasn't that interesting to him if it was related to being asked to do things. And so we didn't continue with that for a while. I actually stepped away from trying to do anything different with Sherlock for, for quite a while. But then I started looking into things that are outside the realm of, of training. I started reading some books about... Um, Horse, horse body language and things like that. And there's there's one book out there that's quite well known, I think, that I read and it, it made a lot of sense about little things horses do to tell you when they're, they're concerned. And they had a different name for it. I call them stress indicators and the book had a different name for it. And I'm not going to mention the, the, the name the book had for it because that will give you away the title of the book. And then everybody will rush out and read it and I... I have mentioned that book before and then everybody rushes out and reads it and takes what they say in that book at face value and I'm not prepared to do that because if you, like there's quite a few pictures in the book and if you look at the way the author of the book handles her horses, because I think whoever has wrote this book is probably very observant and spent a lot of time observing horses but they're not I don't think they're what I would call a handy horse person. And the way they handle their horses in the pictures in the book would teach a horse how to be 
anxious. Okay, there's, there's, there's ways of being around horses that, that have them feel confident in you and there's ways of being around horses that have them feel anxious, make them feel anxious. And the way the, the pictures in this book, the way they handle their horses, it would, it would make any horse anxious. Okay, it's, but there's a lot of good information in the book and I don't even think the book tells you what to do. It just tells you what to be aware of. But I, like I said, I, I'm not, I don't want to mention the book because I, I really can't endorse some of the practices, put it that way. Um, but this book really, it, it really made me aware. And there were some articles that I read too. And, and same thing with the articles. I read some articles by different people that really helped me think about this stuff. But once again, I'm not going to mention articles because I have since researched into the people I read the article by and the article was good, but I wouldn't want people practicing what that person preaches in a practical sense. Their articles, uh, their articles are great, but the practical application I'm probably not that impressed with. So no further ado, I'm not going any further with that. But, but horses tell you these these little things and I started to I started to really be aware of these little things and I hadn't hadn't done a lot with it yet but I'd read I'd read some books and I did I've done some you know belly button gazing I've done some pondering about stuff and so in the start of 2017 February 2017 I um I did a clinic in Texas and it was a three-day clinic. Normally, my mine are two-day clinics, but this was a three-day clinic. And there was a lady at the clinic had a horse. He's a Mustang. His name was Cody. The lady's name was Hannah, and she's lovely. And so is Cody. And he's a nine-year-old Mustang. He's been out of the wild for six years. He's been on the saddle for about that long. And while he's generally pretty well trained, he has a random bolting issue. So randomly, for no reason at all, he will bolt. And the trainer that Hannah gets help from, so Hannah's from Arkansas and so is her trainer, and the trainer, her name's Kristen, she was there, and, and she's Kristen's pretty handy with horses, and so I said to her, so what's the trigger? Like, you've seen, have you seen the bolt? She goes, yeah. And I said, what's the trigger? She says, I can't figure out one. Like, usually, if a horse bolts, there's something that causes the bolting. And when you figure out what that is, you can undo it. You can go back to the very beginning. But you've got to figure out what that is. And Hannah said, or both Hannah and Kristen said, this horse will bolt from something that yesterday didn't bother him or there doesn't seem to be anything bothering him. And it doesn't happen all the time, but it's just random. And I thought, oh, that's that's weird. It's hard to it's hard to fix a problem that you can't get to the bottom of. You know, like the the um the venting mare that I had, you know. She was she spooked at a lot of things, and so on the ground you could see that easily. And so if they're spooking at stuff you're doing in the ground, of course they're going to spook at stuff under saddle, and of course they're going to spook at a brush fence on a cross country course. And but anyway, so this horse he there's no trigger for it that we know of. And so the first day of the clinic, so my my clinics I, I have twelve horses in clinics, and I used to have twelve horses all day, and then for a number of years I had six horses and riders for half a day and now I have three horse and riders for two hours I found that's much easier and I'll get into that later in one of the podcasts as to why I do that but so this clinic was a morning and afternoon group so Hannah was in the morning group and I I don't even remember the horse the first day so we were doing some groundwork of some sort and he was relatively uncomplicated by the sounds of it 
I don't remember anything about him, but the second day, Hannah was working on disengaging him. So disengaging is where you will walk down one side of the horse and then you will, usually you'll use some sort of body language or whatever, energy, intention towards their loin. And if they don't move over, you might take your flag and wave at them. You might swing your rope at them or whatever. And they, they'll they'll step their inside hind foot. So the hind foot that's closest to you, they'll step it across in front of that other foot, that other hind foot. If they step together, they're really quite tense. If they step behind with that inside foot, instead of in, across in front of the outside hind foot, they step behind their outside foot, then they're really tense. And so and a lot of exercises involve getting those horses to cross and uncross that hind leg. And she'd been doing a little bit, and then she said, hey, you're starting to block me out. She says, I was helping somebody else. She said, hey, can you help me? He's starting to block me out. And so what he was doing was she... You start from in front of the horse and you want to walk from the front, around to the side, around to their shoulder, and then from there you ask them to disengage. And um, I said, oh, well, let me try. And so I took a hold of the lead rope and I was standing directly in front of me, Cody's facing me, and I went to walk around that side. And as I did, he didn't pivot and keep me in front of him like some horses will. He just turned his head and kept me in his right eye. So I was trying to go down his left side from in front of him and he just kept me in his right eye. And normally what I would do when a horse did that is I would just reach my hand underneath their jaw. I'd stop, reach my hand under their jaw, just move the jaw over really softly. So now I'm in their left eye and I just walk down that side. You know, there's, there's no, I've never had like a repercussion for it. Like there's no punishment, there's no hitting, and that's, that stuff doesn't interest me. Um, I would normally just move the head out of the way. But from this stuff I'd been reading and all this pondering I'd been doing, Instead of doing that, when he blocked me out with his head, he was telling me, that concerns me a little bit. So I just stepped directly back toward to the front of his body, where I had been, and waited, and his head stayed turned for a bit, and then his head kind of turned to the front, and then he showed me some sign of starting to relax, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure what it was. You know, may, you know, when horses get tense, their rate of blinking slows down. So maybe, or they'll get the stares where their eyes don't blink at all. Uh, or their ears, we've fixated what you would call fixated inward, which means the ears are back, not pinned, but kind of, you know, they're kind of in their own head a little bit. One of those sorts of things. Uh, I, I don't know which, I can't remember which one it was, but I stood there and waited for him to show me some sign of relaxing, like his ears starting to move or his eyes starting to blink, one of those things. And then I tried it again, and he blocked me out. And this went, and I so I stepped back to the front and waited. And this went on for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. But after about 10 or 15 minutes, when I went to walk down that side of him, he would let me walk down that side of him. He, was, he stood there perfectly fine. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I was thinking he didn't like being disengaged. So you're saying, no, I don't want you to get in there and disengage me. So when he does let me down the side of him, I'm thinking, well, I don't want to disengage him right away. Now, he's been ridden for six years, so I'm sure, you know, he's had a saddle on for six years. I'm sure I can touch him. So I took my hand and I went to set it on his withers. So I'm standing beside his shoulder, his left shoulder. I went to put my hand on his withers, and as I did, he raised his head up very slightly and, his, and he stopped blinking. His eyes started staring. And so I stepped, took my hand down, stepped backwards away from him to say, I saw that. I, I see your concern. That's what I was doing when I was in front of him. When he bent his head and said, hey, I don't want you to do that, I stepped back and basically said, yeah, I, I see you, brother. Gotcha. And I did the same thing with this, putting my hand up on his withers. And, you know, so the first time he raised his head up and his eyes got all starey, I stepped back and I 
waited until he blinked and lowered his head and then I tried it again and I don't know, after about five or ten minutes, I can now walk from the front of him around the side of me. He doesn't block me out. And I can put my hand on his wither, which doesn't sound like a big feat, but he doesn't stiffen up. He doesn't go in, you know, he doesn't glaze over. He's very aware of me touching him and he's fine with me touching him. And then I thought, okay, now I'll try the disengaging and see what happens. And so I ask him to disengage, which he does fine. He's been taught to do that perfectly well. And then I thought, now if I go back to the front, if I walk back to the front, I bet since I've disengaged him, he won't let me walk down the side. So I walk back to the front. I go to walk down that side and he's perfectly fine. He lets me walk down there. He lets me disengage him. So I walk back to the front. I try to go back down there. He lets me go down there, disengage him. And so I said to Hannah, okay, well, it's fixed. I don't know what I did because I've never really done that before. But um, yeah, here you go, it's your horse. And I handed her the lead rope and she said, what do you want me to do now? And I said, I would just stand there and let him think about that for a bit. And so I went and helped somebody else. And about 15 minutes later, I hear this collective <gasps> gasp from everybody at the clinic. And I turn and I look. And this horse has buckled at the knees and just dropped to his belly and he's snoring dust clouds in the dirt like his head straight up and down like he's buckled at the knees he's on his belly sitting up on his belly you know with his front legs curled under him and his nose is his head straight up and down he's not laying on his side and he's snoring little dust clouds in the dirt and then he has a bit of a roll rolls on both sides gets up shakes off and then buckles at the knees and down he goes and goes back to sleep again and i said to hannah is that normal and she said, I've had him for six years and I've seen him lay down once. And she said, the one time he was laying down, he was out in the pasture and I showed up on the horizon and he saw me and he jumped up right away. But uh, no, I've never seen him lay down. And it was about 10.30 in the morning of the morning group and we were going to switch over at about 12 o'clock, I think, 12.30, something like that. So he slept for an hour or two hours. From, from that moment on till we had him leave the arena for the other horses to come in, he slept just unconscious with the loudspeaker going on and the the um, other horses riding around, and he was just unconscious. So she put him away. The next day she brought him back in, so the third day of the clinic. You know, it's 8.30 in the morning or whatever time it is, and she said, what do you want me to do with him this morning? I said, I will just hang on and just hang with him a bit and see what he does. And so she stood there with him for a bit, and then, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, he buckles at the knees, down he goes, and he sleeps, and he sleeps for four hours to lunchtime. He's unconscious. There's other horses riding around, and they wanted to get a group photo and so when the afternoon group came in, because I don't stop for lunch, so when the, I just swap groups. So when the afternoon group came in, all the horses from the morning group plus the horses from the afternoon group all got in a bit of a semicircle around him laying on the ground and we took a group photo with him laying there having a snooze. And I came home from that clinic and I was just like, I knew something had happened. I knew something I'd never seen before happen happened then and I wasn't sure what it was, but I knew it was a, it was a big something. And I didn't realize how big a something it was, but I knew something had changed. But I was wondering about the, the sleeping thing. So I started looking up sleeping habits of horses or sleeping needs of horses. And I didn't do the research. The research is already on the internet. But, you know, we all know horses can sleep standing up. They can sleep standing up or laying down. But when they're standing up, they're only napping. They're not having that deep restorative REM sleep. And, and they've got, in order, to lay, in order to have REM sleep, they've got to lay down. And that's the one that resets everything. And we can't actually ask horses how they feel if they don't have enough REM sleep. But we do know in humans, if you don't get enough REM sleep, you can be irritable or anxious. And so this horse, 
I think, had not had any REM sleep for the last six years because there's a possibility he was alone in a pasture on his own, I'm not sure, but hadn't felt safe enough to not to have to lay down and, and have a big old snooze and have REM sleep. So I got to thinking about, well, what what was it, you know, why, why did he choose then to lay down? And I think it's that whole being seen, being heard, feeling felt and getting gotten thing. He, and which is what, that's what a herd provides other horses with is awareness. And yeah, he, um, yeah, he just, it was, yeah, it was just, it was pretty mind boggling for me to make that big a change. But the biggest change has happened since then because it's now July, 2020. So it's now February, March, April, May, June, July. It's now two years and five months, three years and five months later. And Cody has not bolted once since. The bolting has gone away. So if you think about that, think about bolting. Not only is it scary, it's, it's downright dangerous. And I solved a scary, dangerous issue with a horse, not by applying any pressure to him or any particular tool or piece of tack or training regime or whatever. I didn't ask him to do anything. The only thing I did was tell him, I see you. I, I see your level of concern. So once again, it's that being seen, being heard, feeling felt and getting gotten thing. And uh, that, was the, that was the very first time I realized how, how much of a difference that, that attunement that can make. And you know, that's the first time I helped a horse that didn't involve training the horse. It involved listening to the horse. And I didn't think listening was going to be that helpful. You know, I just, I, all it was, I think it was, you know, I think the universe gave me all the tools at the time. I'd, I'd had a horse, Sherlock, that stumped me. I'd stepped away from Sherlock. I'd read some stuff, hadn't really put in a practice yet, but just read things, different things about horses. And then, then the universe presented me with this horse at this clinic. And it was, yeah, it was a bit of a, a bit of a watershed. And so I spent the rest of the year doing clinics looking at things totally differently than I'd looked at before, completely differently. And so it was a pretty humbling year because all my clinics, people were coming to the clinics to have me help them with their horse and show them how to fix this thing. And they come to this clinic and I'm like, you know what? I have no idea what I'm doing. I know what I used to do. I'm not doing that right now. I don't know what I'm doing right now, but I know... I've got an idea and if you just bear with me and it's it's probably the most humbling experience of my life because I had to admit to these people that that had paid me money and come to see the guy that they saw on YouTube do the same things he did on YouTube and I'm not doing the same things I did on YouTube. I'm doing things a lot differently. And so what I noticed that year was if you could get a horse's attention, like if a horse was uptight and worried or distracted or whatever, if you could get their attention and get their attention, which means their thoughts come towards you. That doesn't necessarily mean they face you. It means their thoughts come towards you. Because in the past, I'd been very good at getting horses to stand facing me, but their thoughts might be somewhere else, either far off in the distance or inside their head, one or the other. And so I was, I was now working more on the mental state than the what the physical body was doing. And, and, you know, in 600 BC, a Chinese philosopher named Lao Tzu said, if you're depressed, you're living in the past 
And if you're anxious, you're living in the future. And if you are living in the present, then you are peaceful. And, you know, if if, if you... Um, if you've ever tried to meditate or mindful breathing stuff, you know, if you're anxious and you start thinking on your breathing, your breathing is in the present. It's happening right now. It's coming in. It's going out now. It's not tomorrow. It's not yesterday. It's, it's right now. So, you know, they help people a lot with anxiety by having them focus on their breathing. And what I'd realized was if I can get these horses' attention on me, it helps them relax. And it's not about getting their attention on me, but getting their attention in the same place their body is, basically getting their mind and their body in the same place. And what I had noticed with these horses is when you get their attention, if you're observant, you will notice that, so there's a nerve that runs down the side of their head called the trigeminal nerve, and it's basically the highway from their all their muzzle and all that stuff up to their brain. And what I noticed with that, so above the corners of their mouth is where I noticed it, is if you can get their attention and just sit there and wait and just be present with them, that nerve starts twitching. And it's, it jumps like it's like it's having a twitch sort of a thing. And then their lower lip will start twitching. And then their upper lip will start twitching. And if you wait long enough, while that twitching is going on, at some point in time they will have a sigh and a big old lick and a chew. So the lick and chew is, and I don't want to get too much into the, the nervous system of mammals yet, but I'm going to go over a little bit. So you've got, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and relaxation state, and you've got your sympathetic nervous system, which is your your fight or flight state. So your sympathetic nervous system is your accelerator or your gas pedal, and the parasympathetic nervous system is the brake. It slows things down, um, and the sympathetic nervous system speeds things up. It puts them on high alert, fight or flight, get ready to save yourself sort of thing. And when a horse goes from being in the parasympathetic nervous system up to the sympathetic nervous system of some sort, doesn't matter if it's a lot or a little, when they return back to the parasympathetic nervous system, they will lick and chew. And what that is, is, is what happens to the muzzle when they go into the sympathetic nervous system is the, the, the parts of their body they don't need go, kind of go offline. The blood drains away from their muzzle and the heart, the heart pulls it in to, to spread it out to the extremities, the, all the, um, the, the legs, the thing that are going to, keep them, going to keep them alive, get them to run. They don't need to eat right then, so the muzzle clamps shut. And horses are actually nose breathers, so they don't breathe through their mouth. They breathe through their nose. And if their mouth is open at all when they're breathing through their nose, they're not as uh, aerobically as efficient as they are with their lips clamped shut. So there's like a lot of research these days into, or some research I might say, these days into racehorses and bits and racehorses. And if a bit cracks the lip seal of a horse during the race, he cannot be as aerobically as efficient as if he can clamp his lips shut. And so when horses go into some sort of sympathetic nervous system level, when they come back to the parasympathetic, so they come back to the rest of relaxation, they'll have a lick and a chew. So what I discovered with these horses is I think a lot of horses spend a lot of time around humans in low-level sympathetic nervous system. So they kind of they're concerned, but they're holding it all in. And they're not licking and chewing, kind of relaxed. And what I've what I found at these clinics was if I could get a horse's attention and then just wait, you would see that twitching going on, and that would twitch and twitch and twitch. And if you wait long enough, they will 
lick and chew. And I've had horses at clinics where I've had to stand there for 35 minutes watching that twitching until the lick and chew. So I might be sitting in front of um, the owner who's paid for the clinic, but I might be sitting in front of 100 spectators and I've just got to sit, stand there and wait for this horse, even though it's the most boring thing on earth for these people to watch. It's what I felt was needed at the time. And so I learned a lot that year uh, with that stuff. But talking about that whole licking and chewing thing, there's a video that's been around social media for a while. Now you see it pop up every once in a while and it's five or six, four or five or six horses in a in a big sort of a yard pen thing. It's kind of like half the size of a normal arena. And it's really dusty and windy. And there's a horse in there that has a plastic bag in his mouth and he's chasing his friends around with a plastic bag and he's having a fun old time. He's just chasing his friends here and there with his plastic bag in his mouth and they're like, oh my God, plastic bag, and they run away from him. And it's really, really cute. And some of you have seen it and thought that maybe nodding right now as I'm talking, but actually what's happened is, and this happens quite often, is it's a windy day and that plastic bag's obviously blown through there and horses... If they're not fearful of something, the first thing they do is, is get curious about it, sniff it, just like with the target with the clicker training I was talking about. And he's obviously gone over and sniffed it, and then he's nibbled on it with his teeth, and then the wind's blown it, and it's flapped and scared him, and he's gone into sympathetic nervous system. So his jaws clamped shut on this bag, and he's taken off running away from the bag over towards his friends. And when he gets over there and makes a bit of a turn, the wind changes, and now it's blowing the bag um, the other way and the bag's between him and his friends so he runs away from the bag around the pen now the bag's now on the other side of his face and he runs back towards his friends and he's actually petrified he's actually in you know a great deal of terror but if you look at that video you you tend to think oh my goodness look at that look at that pony he's having such a fun time whereas he's not having a fun time and so you just have to be aware of that about that that nervous system, that's one part of the parasympathetic nervous system. Like Sherlock, you know, he, Sherlock never licked and chewed, didn't lick and chew at all. And like I said, it, it was really hard to get the the bit in his mouth and take it out because his, his mouth didn't work. He was basically stuck in low-level sympathetic nervous system all the time. And, and so a lot of horses do that. Um, and something else I noticed that year you know, like I said, I, I might spend 30 minutes waiting around for this horse to lick and chew. And so once I realized how, and what happens with the one that takes 30 minutes, the next time you do it, it takes 25 minutes. The next time you do it, it takes 20 minutes. Then it takes 15. Then it takes 10. And by the next day, you ask them to do something. Maybe go off around you in half a circle. Then you draw them in and you stop and they lick and chew right away. It kind of resets their nervous system. That's really what you're trying to do. With, I'm trying to do with a lot of that stuff. And that's what I kind of had to try to do with Sherlock. But something I noticed, you know, once I realized that it might take half an hour for me to stand around with this horse to lick and chew, what I'd do is I'd get it all set up to where the horse is twitching and then I'd just hand, it over to the, hand the horse over to the owner and say, just stand here with him and just wait for him to have a lick and chew. And this was later on in the year because I had um, realized how long it can take. And there's no use me standing there where I could be helping somebody else. I'll just have the owner stand there. And some of them would start crying. I've left them alone for 15 minutes and they're standing there and they would just start crying. And I'd go over like, you okay? And, and they go, oh, yeah, I was just thinking about something my mum said to me when I was a kid or I was just thinking about something my dad did when I was a kid. 
And I had no idea what that was about at the time. And since then, I've learned that a lot of us have a hard time being present in the moment. We've always got to stay busy in our minds doing something or other because if you can quieten your mind and be present, there's some feelings that come up that a lot of us have been avoiding by being busy. And, um, you know, I'm sure these people would have rather that I had them just move their horse around and, do, and have something to do, but they just had to stand there and observe their horse's muzzle twitching and just wait. And, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't learn it till later what actually the crying was about. At the time, I thought it was really weird. I just thought I'd... I didn't know why they were crying, but later on I, I found out what was actually going on there. So I think it was that year, in oh, April of that year, I think, I did a, um, I presented a horse expo in Madison, Wisconsin. It's the Midwest Horse Fair, it's called. Really, really good horse expo. A lot of people there. And when we set up our booth um, in the trade hall, you know, the the Expo Hall. A good friend of mine from Australia, Dan James. A lot of you guys would know Dan James as one half of the Double Dan Horsemanship guys. If you haven't listened to their podcast, you have to listen to that. That is funny. Those guys are some funny human beings, Dan James and Dan Steers. And so Dan uh, James's booth was on the end of the row I was in. And next to him was uh, Sandy Collier and Barbara Schulte. So Sandy Collier is the only woman to win the the, the Rain Cow Horse Futurity here in America. And she's also in the Cowgirl Hall of Fame. And Barbara Schulte was a big-time cutting horse trainer, and I think she's in the Cutting Horse, NCHA, the National Cutting Horse Association Hall of Fame. But she's also a very, very good mental coach. And so she was a big-time cutter back in the mm, 80s, 90s. And she um, had a bit of a life change to where she went to Florida to a place called the Human Potential Institute, and it's where they, they train Olympic coaches. And she went through all that stuff and really learnt the science of motivating people. And now she helps people with their horses and, and uses that stuff. And I'd, I'd heard of her for many years. So this was 2017. I remember in 2000 and or maybe 1999, I remember I had a I had a, a cassette tape. That's how long ago it was. A cassette tape of Barbara Schulte's called Mentally Tough Showing or something or other. And it talked about the mindset of uh, competing. And so this is 17 years later. I finally get to meet her. And so, because I know Sandy, and so she's in the booth with Sandy. So I meet her and we were chatting when we were setting our booths up. And then the first morning, that was the day before, and the first morning of the Horse Expo, I had to go and do a demo, well, not a demo, one of those things I talked about before where you are in a lecture hall and it's just a spoken thing. It's not a demonstration with a horse. And when you do those horse expos, about six months before the horse expo, they want to know all your titles. You don't even know what the horse is going to look like that you're going to work with, but they want to know what you're going to be working on. So it's I've usually make some broad categories. But this one for the stand-up talk, I've done this one a number of times and it's called Everything I Learned in Life I Learned from Horses. And I usually go on for an hour, an hour and a half, whatever it is, about different life lessons I've learned from horses that also carry over to other aspects of my life. And so I I was heading up to go and do that. I walked past the booth and said, good morning, Barbara, how are you? And she said, good. And I told her, she said, what are you doing now? And I told her and she said, oh, good luck. So I went up and I did the, the talk and there was the room was full. There was probably a couple hundred people in the room. And I, for some reason, I 
maybe it's all the stuff had been going on that year and looking at things differently, but I kind of, I opened up about some things that I probably hadn't opened up about to anybody before. They were private thoughts about things. And I, I basically told a room full of strangers this stuff and it just exhausted me. Like when it was over, I felt like I'd run a marathon or something. And so I walked back to the booth and as I walked past Barbara's booth, she said, how'd it go? And I said, oh God, I'm just exhausted. And she said, why? And I said, oh, because I just, you know, I, I said some stuff that I probably had never told any, I probably may not even had admitted to myself before, I don't know. And it's just exhausted, exhausted me. And she said, oh, well, you know, so-and-so says that vulnerability is, is a superpower. Being vulnerable like that is, is the ultimate in bravery or something like that. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I went back down to my booth and I sat there and people come up to the booth and I start, out, you know, they ask questions and say g'day, whatever. And this one young lady, you know, probably in her late 20s came up to the booth and she introduces herself and she's a subscriber. So she subscribes to my online video platform and really lovely lady. And uh, she was asking me a question about something. And I, and because she's a subscriber, I assumed she was at my lecture that morning and, and she asked me a question about something. And I said, uh, I remember I talked about this this morning in the lecture. And she said, oh, no, I wasn't there. I just, I just got here. I'm like, oh, you missed it. She said, yeah. And I said, oh, bloody hell, it just exhausted me. And she said, why? And I, I told her why. And she said, oh, well, Brene Brown says shame is the scourge of society and vulnerability is the antidote to shame. And I'm like, wow, that's profound. Do you know Barbara Schulte? And she said, no. I said, well, come over here and meet Barbara Schulte. So I drug her up there to meet Barbara Schulte. And I said, hey, tell her what you just told me. And the lady's name is uh, Megan. And Megan said, she said, oh, well, Brene Brown says shame is the scourge of society and vulnerability is the antidote to shame. And Barbara Schulte looks at me and she goes, yeah, that's who I just told you about half an hour ago, Brene Brown. When she said so-and-so says that vulnerability is the ultimate and bravery or something rather like that, she actually said Brene Brown, but I'd never heard of Brene Brown before. So here it is. I'm 50, 50 years old and I have never heard of Brene Brown, and I get her name mentioned to me by two complete strangers in half an hour. So it's one of those serendipitous things that happened. That happen, and I'm going to do a whole podcast on um, later on on um, serendipitous occasions and manifesting and that sort of stuff because I'm into all that. But this this whole weekend, that was the first of many, many, many um, very, very crazy. Uh, serendipitous things that happened at that horse expo and so when I came home from that horse expo I um I looked up Brene Brown and I think if you haven't heard of her you should too and I looked the first place you should go is the first place I went which was YouTube and there's a TED talk on that she did on YouTube and it's called The Power of Vulnerability so her name's Brene B-R-E-N-E or if you're Australian B-R-E-N-E um Sometimes as an Australian in America, you get pronounced of putting on an American accent. But uh, if I say ah, as in for rabbit, Americans think I'm saying uh, ah. I mean a, a for apple, not ah for rabbit. And so sometimes I'll say ah, just so they get the spelling right. Um, and so I looked up that. And so then I downloaded some audio books of Brene Brown's. And so that's 20 minutes long. All TED Talks are 20 minutes long. I guarantee you, if you listen to that, your life will never be the same again. That's your gateway drug. You can thank me later. And so I um, 
I got some books of audio books of Brene Brown's and I, when I was outside, you know, on the tractor or whatever, on the mower, whatever I was doing, I'd have my noise cancelling headphones on and I'd be listening to these Brene Brown books. And I remember on the tractor one day I was listening and I'm like, wow, this lady's been inside my head. And then half an hour later I'd be thinking, wow, this lady's been inside my wife's head. And, and those are two different heads, okay, completely two different heads. And I guess this lady gets the human condition really. And one of the things she said really got me thinking. She said, you cannot selectively suppress emotions. If you suppress the lower emotions, you automatically suppress the higher emotions. So if you suppress the lower emotions like um, fear, uh, grief, things like that, you automatically suppress the higher ones. You can't selectively suppress ones. If you suppress the bigger ones of any emotion, the good and the bad, you're suppressing all the other big ones too. And I've never really thought of that. And I thought, hmm, I know, I know, you know, a male of my generation that you, you get, you know, you have the whole boys don't cry and don't show fear and all that sort of stuff. So I know some of the things are suppressed. And in, and in my family, we didn't, you know, you don't show grief. Um... You know, you go to a funeral and they're like, oh, well, he died. Well, such is life and off you go. But I'd never thought about, could I experience more joy or more happiness or that sort of thing. And so I've kind of pondered this for a while. And then I actually contacted the lady that came to the booth, Megan, because she's a therapist. And so I told her, I said, if I wanted to work on this, like if I thought that some of my emotions, the full range of my emotions were suppressed, you know, where would I go to, you know, find out about it, you know, to, to work on it? You know, is there a counsellor I could go and see or is there a class you take? Is there a book to read? And Megan said, you know what, I would go and see a therapist who specialises in something called dialectical behaviour therapy. And for me, it was it was kind of weird because, you know, I grew up in rural Australia. I'd never heard of anybody Seeing a therapist, you know, I remember the town having, you know, builders and plumbers and dentists and doctors and hardware stores and whatever, but I don't remember there being a therapist in town. Maybe there was, but it's not, you know, it's, I was of the impression that, you know, people that have to go and see a therapist are having some pretty serious issues. And, uh, you know, I wasn't having, I wasn't having issues. I just wanted to work on this particular thing. But so I went to, um, I went and found a, a, a therapist's, in this area, well, not this area, it's an hour's drive away, but up in, so we live in the bottom end of Silicon Valley. And so I went to a therapist up in Silicon Valley. Uh, it's actually called the, the Dialectical Behaviour Therapy Centre of Silicon Valley. So Dialectical Behaviour Therapy was actually started for highly suicidal adults, but they found it's good for anybody with any uh, emotional regulation issues. And so I went up there, talked to you know, had an interview with the therapist and I told her what I wanted to do. And she goes, oh, yeah, this would be, be quite simple. You know, so we also offer nighttime classes. So they're a group therapy session, but you won't need to do that. And so I started going once a, once a week and maybe twice, once every two weeks, I can't remember, up to this uh, therapist. And after about three months, I wasn't getting anywhere. And the therapist knew I wasn't getting anywhere. And she said, you know what, you could probably come to the, the group classes at night time too. I'm like, okay. So then I started going to the group classes at night time. And 
It was interesting because there was, you know, there was people with all sorts of emotional regulation issues there. But the group classes, what they would do, they would have you, you know, you do the stuff in class, but then they'd give you homework to do. You had this big homework book. And the homework, a lot of it, it was very much like horse training because, so I've done a, I've done a, a TV show that appears on um, Horse and Country TV in the UK and Europe and Australia, New Zealand, I think. And it's also on, same show is on um, Farm and Ranch TV here in America. And it's called The Principles of Training. And, and one of the principles of training is create a tool before you use a tool. So create the tool you're going to need when the problem shows up before the problem shows up. Because you can't, without a tool in the middle of, you know, if you have no tools, trying to fix something in the middle of a problem with no tools is not the way to go about it. And this this was no different. What they wanted you to do, they wanted you to practice these emotional regulation techniques for when you have some sort of emotional crisis and then you use them. So during the week, earlier on the week, you're supposed to practice these things. And then when you have a problem during the week, you're supposed to use those skills that you've developed. And they're very big on you doing your homework. And, you'd, you know, if someone didn't do their homework, they got questioned quite a bit as to why didn't you do your homework. Trying to get people to be a bit more disciplined. And for the most part, I never did the homework because, okay, I'd read the thing and go, okay, so if I have an emotional crisis, I'm supposed to practice this. Okay, I sit there, I practice it. But I didn't have any emotional crisis, did I? <laughs> and so when it came to homework time, they go, did you do your homework? I said, well, I did half of it. Well, why didn't you do all of it? Well, I didn't have an emotional crisis. And so I did I did this whole therapy for a year and I didn't get anywhere with it because apparently in order for this therapy to work, you actually have to have some emotions. I, I have, at the time, had absolutely none pretty much. And so um, it didn't work that way. But I learned a lot of really cool stuff, some really profound things I learned, especially in the group therapy part, as parts of the homework and stuff that, that apply to a lot of things, but one of the, and the, you know, so they're, they're really big on, on uh, mindfulness and meditation. And I'd been meditating before that because I don't, I don't know when I started, but uh, I know, yeah, for our homework and stuff, we'd have to do some meditation and that was fine with me because I was already doing that. But uh, one of the, one of the homeworks we did, it was really cool. They said, this week we're going to talk about judgmental thoughts and your homework for this week is to, Count your judgmental thoughts. And they said, however you want to keep track of them, if you put some stones and little pebbles in one pocket and when you have a judgmental thought, you move it to the other pocket. And at the end of the day, you add up how many judgmental thoughts you had. Or you could, um, you know, have a little clicker thing like the you see bus conductors have or sometimes you see the, the bouncer at a nightclub or the doorman at a nightclub has not and know how many people are going in and out. And... What we want you to do is, is count your judgmental thoughts, see how many you have. So I thought, well, I'm going to have about three every day, so I'll probably just get three stones and stick in my pocket, and then what I'll do is, as I have a judgmental thought, I'll move it from one pocket to the other, and then at the end of the day, the, the number will be three. So the day I started, so it must have been a Tuesday, I think, because I think the group things were Monday nights. Uh, the day I started, I had 21 before breakfast, and the thing about counting judgmental thoughts is once you start counting your judgmental thoughts, you really become aware of how many of them you have. And then what happens is not only do you become aware of how many of them you have, you become aware 
Elf, how many of them you have about yourself? And we are our own worst enemy. And, and all that judgment we have about ourselves is somewhere in your subconscious. You don't even know you're doing it, but it adds up a lot to a lot of, of, of who you are and how you view the world. And so Brene Brown ended up being a shame researcher. She was a researcher, which means she would interview hundreds and hundreds of people and ask them hundreds and hundreds of questions and then collate all that stuff into basically what makes them the, the human brain tick and things like that. But all the research led her to the, the, like I said before, the scourge of society is shame. Like everybody, the reason people are addicted to things and this and that and something else is all because of, of shame. And, and where you can get, and so she quantifies the difference between guilt and shame. So guilt is a focus on behavior and shame is a focus on self. And so if you do something that's a bit questionable, shame would be, ah, oh, you're so stupid. That's, the, that's your self-talk. Ah, oh, you're so stupid. Whereas guilt would be, well, I did something stupid, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm stupid. I just made a, a, a choice that was stupid. And so next time I could do that differently. So you get to reframe it. And so when you really get start doing that, when you start being aware of your thoughts and when ones pop up where you are less than nice to yourself, you get to actually reframe that. And so it goes in your subconscious as I did something stupid, I can do it better next time rather than you are stupid. I mean, you just, until you start counting those judgmental thoughts, you just don't realize how much of that stuff you do. And that makes a huge difference when it comes to working with your horse because if you get a practice of of being non-judgmental like so the first night at therapy when we talked about this judgment thing they said okay we're going to go around the room and at one at a time I'm going to have each of you describe three things in the room like point out pick out describe three objects in a room like name so not describe sorry name three objects in a room when it came to me I said well that's a couch and that's a silly looking lamp and that's a, and the therapist is like, no, well, stop, hang on. That was a judgment. That is a lamp. But you judged it as being a silly looking lamp. I might like it. You think it's silly looking, but you you judged it. It's it's a lamp. And I went, huh, really? I didn't even realize I did that. And so once you once you become aware of of those thoughts, like I said, you you get to reframe them and, and, and a lot of them are about yourself. And that I think that does a huge thing to your inner energy when you when you stop being so nasty to yourself. And but another part of it is is about judgment with horses. You get it, it gets to where you a horse does something and and you can name what he does, but without having a judgment whether it's good or bad. You know, I think um, William Shakespeare said, nothing is good or bad, only thinking makes it so. So that judge, that judging of stuff makes it so. And if you're into quantum physics, you'd know about the observer effect. But, um, you know, because a lot of times with a, a horse does something, if you judge it a certain way, your energy changes, you become more hostile, you become more combative, you become negative about the horse's behavior. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with what the horse just did. It's your interpretation of what the horse just did. And probably the best example of this, I was doing a clinic in um, Western Australia in Perth a few years ago. And, you know, my 
my clinics are for subscribers only. So that's for people who are subscribers to the video library that I have. And that's not a money grab or anything like that. That is, you know, this right now there's about 650 hours of real-time training footage on that thing of me doing stuff and talking my way through it and telling you exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and when I'm doing it and how I'm doing it. And if you've never heard all that stuff before, you're just way behind the eight ball. And so I used to have clinics to where some people were subscribers and some weren't. And you spend all your time trying to get the non-subscribers to even grasp what I'm on about. And so the people who have supported me all this time have come to the clinic and they don't get as much attention because I've spent it with all the non-subscribers. So so we have uh, subscriber-owned clinics. And this was a few years ago. And, and I think it might have been the first year of doing subscriber-owned clinics. And when I, when I first decided to do that, I was really a bit self-conscious about, I wonder what people will think. I wonder if they think, oh, he's so, he thinks he's so good. He doesn't want me to come to the clinic unless they pay money to watch his video. <laughs> Which is just, you know, that's my problem. That's not we really what other people were thinking, but that's, you know, that's what I tend to think. But I just, you know, I still had to do it because it was, wasn't was fair to the subscribers to have to spend all the time trying to help the other people catch up. So I'm doing this clinic in Perth. It's the morning of the clinic and a lady that's supposed to be in the afternoon groups. This is back when I was still doing a morning group and an afternoon group. She says, hey, I, my horse cut his leg last night and I can't be in the clinic. And can I just give my spot to my friend? She's not a subscriber, but and I'm like, no, no, no. She goes, oh, please, no, please, no. And finally, I'm like, against my better judgment, okay. But, okay, so she's in the afternoon group. She's going to be the last, she needs to know she's going to be the last person I help. Okay, I'm going to start helping the other five before I get to her. She's going to be the last person I help. But if she watches all morning and sees what, because some of the ones in the afternoon group are going to be writing, but most of the ones in the morning are going to be doing groundwork. So if she watches all morning and sees what they do, when she comes in this afternoon, if she starts there and works through that, by the time I get to her, I could maybe start to add some more to it. And so she came in in the afternoon group and she was on the ground. And uh, I think most of the others were under saddling. So she went over to the corner, knowing full well that I'm going to get to her, but not first. And I think she was just asking a horse to yield off and go around her. And at some point in time, there was quite a few, I used to get quite a few spectators at the clinics. And at one point in time, there, a lady, a spectator lady stands up, starts waving her arms and yelling at me in the arena. Are you going to stop that? Why don't you stop that? Aren't you going to do anything about that? And I'm like, what what's what's wrong she points over to the corner where that lady's working with the horse over in the corner she goes that over there aren't you going to put a stop to that and i'm thinking maybe the lady's abusing her horse over there i haven't watched her you know maybe she's over there abusing her horse and i said well, well what's going on and the lady in the stand the spectator says her horse it's wearing up i said oh is that all she goes he's he's wearing up and so i said to the lady over in the corner so when is he rearing up? And she said, when I ask him to go off around me, he doesn't go off around me, he just rears up. I went, okay. And so the spectator lady's like, aren't you going to fix that? And she's in a bit of a state. And I said, so what are you so concerned about? She goes, well, he's rearing up. I said, yeah, I know, but I still can't figure out. What are you so concerned about? She goes, because he's rearing up. Rearing's dangerous. And I'm like, well... She's just asking a horse to basically lunge off around her, and he, he won't. He's just basically uh, – well, think about it this way. I said, would you, be ne- would you be that concerned? Would you have that much judgment over what was going on if that lady asked a horse to move and he wouldn't move, he just stood still? 
And the lady's whole face and posture softened and she said, now I wouldn't really be worried about that. And I said, well, that's what he's doing. He's just doing it on two legs. He's standing perfectly still. He's not moving. His hind feet have not moved an inch. They're, they're not going anywhere. He's just standing still on two legs. And this lady looked at me like I had three heads, like, but he's rearing. And she goes, but rearing's dangerous. What if he comes down on top of you? I said, well, the, the best way when you, if a horse rears up like this one, so he stands perfectly still and rears up, the best thing to do is not walk forward and lay on the ground where his front feet were, and then you'll have no chance of getting landed on. And she's like, but, 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 but what, if he, what if he comes at you? And I said, but he's not. He's standing perfectly still. I said, what you're doing here is you're having an extreme reaction to him standing still because you're thinking, well, what if he came forward and his, hand, his foot crashed down in my head? He's not coming forward. And I bet you're also thinking, but what if I was riding him on the trail and a kangaroo jumped out and that happened and we're a long way from town and, and would it be a helicopter or an ambulance that would come? You are creating all these stories. You're having all these judgments about what's happening and really what's happening is nothing. The horse is just standing still. And he just had to be standing still on two legs. And then you were creating this huge, big story about it. And you're feeling the need to interrupt the clinic and yell at me because I'm not fixing the problem. But if the problem was exactly the same problem but slightly different, meaning if that horse's front feet didn't come off the ground, you wouldn't be near as concerned about it. And so that's having a judgment about that. The horse, you know, what I saw when I actually, when I went to help the lady, he did the same thing. What I saw was a horse standing perfectly still on two legs. What this lady saw was all sorts of stories that were just her judgment of the situation, not the real situation. And, um, you know, I've had people over the years at clinics say, uh, my horse rears up and comes at me. And when I've watched it, what happens is the horse rears up and then the person goes, oh, my God, my horse is rearing up and starts walking backwards away from the horse with the lead rope attached to the horse. And so they lead the horse towards them. And now they convince themselves that my horse rears up and comes at me, whereas if you didn't move, the horse wouldn't step forward. Now, I'm not saying there aren't horses that rear up and come at you. Okay? And usually, if there are, there's been a lot of mistakes made to get it to that bad. But, but that's just a story about judgment. And, and, you know, this horse wasn't doing anything dangerous. But this lady was projecting all this, this stuff into it. So you just have to be really aware of that. And something I noticed, so that was 2000 and. I don't know when that rearing thing was, but the whole therapy thing was 2018. And I'd taken the year off. I'd taken the year off from clinics. For, I didn't do any clinics in 2018. So all the standing around watching the twitching, the, you know, the, the Mustang and all that stuff, that was all 2017. 2018, my wife and I did the World Equestrian Games, my wife Robin and I. And so I took a year off for a number of reasons. One was to do all the qualifying for the World Equestrian Games and do that thing. Another was to, I'd had so many changes with what I did with horses in the last 12 months that I wanted to like regroup that. And the funny thing was that the changes in the horses really made some changes in me and that basically led to me having a whole year of therapy. And so I hadn't been traveling at all. You know, I wasn't flying anywhere. I was basically at home and we were driving to horse shows. And... When I went back to traveling at the end of the year, or the beginning of the next year, doing clinics, I noticed something in airports. I noticed that when I walked through an airport, I'm a people watcher, and I'm sure most of you who listen to this, if you ever sat in an airport or a bus stop or whatever, you sit there and you watch people. 
And so I walked through this airport from one end to the other, and I noticed I was people watching as they were going by. And I realized I've always been a people watcher, but what I realized was that I was judging them. I wasn't looking at the best thing about them. I was looking at the worst thing about them. You know, the, I'm walking through the airport and my the stream of thoughts in my head would be like, you left the house looking like that? You need a haircut. You need to step away from the potato chips. You're wearing not enough clothes for this weather or you're wearing too many clothes for this weather or whatever. You know, it's just all these judgments. And once I realized I was doing it, I thought, hang on, I want to replace that with something else. And so I started walking along. And sometime during 2018, Rob and I went to a, like a mindfulness meditation retreat thing for a weekend. And we did, one of the yoga teachers there said something at the end of the, at the end of the yoga session. You know, a lot of times I'll say namaste, but she said, namaste, may you be happy. And it was just a little simple thing. And so while I was walking along, I started looking everybody in the eye who was walking past me the other way. I'd look them in the eye, and instead of allowing my mind to judge them, I would make my mind look them in the eye, and I would think to myself, may you be happy. And I'd give them a little eye smile. And most people won't look at you. Some of them look at you, and when they see you looking at them, they look at the ground. But some people, they look at you, and you give them a little eye smile, and they give you that little eye smile back, and there's this little exchange of energy, and it's really kind of cool. But I walked, you know, so once I realized I was judging people, I started doing the may you be happy thing. And so I started walking, walking through this airport and I'm thinking, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy. And when I got to the other end of the airport, I had this light, airy feeling about me that I don't normally have. It's the total opposite of what I normally have, which is this dark, heavy energy, or we had, not have, because it's not there anymore, but... There was this dark, heavy energy that I had that I didn't even realize I had because it was my, it was my normal. Okay? You don't even know. you. It's kind of like not realizing that I had the full range of emotions because that was my normal. So I didn't know what joy and happiness felt like. Um, and so if you think about that, and I'll talk about this in another episode, but if you think about that energy inside you being different, horses can feel that. So if you can, if you can have a... A, a, a more connective sort of energy when you look at things instead of looking at them in a bad way, looking at it in a positive way, um, and then think good things about them instead of looking for the worst thing but looking for the best thing. It really changes your energy. And I, I found that that stuff really made a difference with the horses. Like I, you know, once I started doing that, I noticed that clinics, someone's got a horse that's kind of anxious. And I'll say, hand him here and I'll, I'll, I'll do something or other. And in the past, I would take a whole horse and do something with it to make it less anxious. But what I've noticed here for a while now, since I've been going through these changes, is someone will hand me a horse and the instant I take the lead rep, that horse kind of softens and comes over towards me and almost puts their nose in my belly button like, hey, how you going? And it, it hadn't happened before. So that's not something I'm doing at the time. That's not something I am consciously doing like thinking, think good thoughts for this horse. Think good thoughts, spend the spoon, you know, none of that stuff. It's just I, um, it's just I must have just this different energy in me. And so that that made the horses kind of different. And um, and I think it's it's me being different that, that has made that happen. So anyway, that, I think we're going to draw to a close here with this podcast, but that's, that's kind of how, you know, because a lot of people have commented on, hey, you've changed a lot of things. I've seen your journey and you've changed a lot of things in the last few years. And that's that's kind of 
the beginning of the whole story. It's, it's you know, it was, I got a horse that was shut down. He led me to somehow looking into how shut down I was. And that's still a process I'm working on to this day. But, um, yeah, that, that whole that whole being aware of that attunement stuff, that, that being seen, you know, letting those horses know that they're being seen, being felt, getting gotten and, what is it? Being seen, being heard, being felt and getting gotten. And I'm going to talk about that quite a bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's the start of the whole thing. Thanks for, thanks for sitting through this much of uh, this podcast. And uh, I, think, I think in the next podcast I might start to talk a bit about um, some of the things I'm having people do with their horses or how I'm going about things differently with horses that, that helps with that stuff, both with the observation of things, my inner energy, my thoughts, and also how I'm asking horses to do things. And it's it's funny, it's all tied in together. It's just, it's all down the same rabbit hole. I'm down this rabbit hole and the more I get in this rabbit hole, the more stuff I find down there. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us and uh, stay tuned for podcast number two and we'll talk more about some of this stuff. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.